thank you, Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, by which we can be healed, or by which we can be set free, but the name of Jesus. Let's say his name, Jesus. Jesus, we invite you into this place. This is your house. These are your people. This is your word. Be magnified, oh God. Be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to, like, run laps here. Um, you'd be surprised to know that that was Julia's only second time leading worship. First, yeah. Yeah, first service, thank you, JJ. First service um, was her first time, and wow, she's only 19. I, 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 we, we're not going to talk about what I was doing when I was 19, but it wasn't leading worship. But, you know, Julia, really, I mean, what I really saw in that was like you taking God's gift and giving it back to him this morning. I, I really believe you blessed him, so well done, well done. <sighs> we already took the offering, right? Okay. Bad dad joke, so. Hi, my name is Dan Donahue. I'm an elder here at Trinity, and uh, I have the pleasure of bringing you the word this week. And the reason why I'm doing it is our pastoral staff, led by Pastors Kirk and Shelby, went off this week for a few days to connect with each other, connect with God, really understand the call on their ministry and for this church. And so I don't know about you, but aren't you glad we have pastors that seek God? that seek him. So, Pastor Kirk, thank you. The way you lead yourself, the way you lead your family, and the way you lead us, it will go well with you, and it will go well with us. So, thank you. We appreciate that. We really do. And many of you, I don't even recognize, which, uh, it's not because of the masks, but, but it's a testimony to how, how you've led us through this crazy year. And how God has brought in all these new people. So if you're new to Trinity, welcome. You're in a good place. You're in a place where uh, you will find love. And you will find the word of God preached. And uh, you found a family. So welcome. Today is the third week of our series we're currently doing. It's titled Following Jesus. Uh, in which we are looking into the gospel of Matthew. To see and understand what it looks like and what it means to follow Jesus. And the first week... Pastor Kirk opened up the series, and in that we learned just how terse Mark is uh, compared to the other Gospels. There's a lot of action, and you'll see like Mark when he writes, it's like immediately, and just then, and they went, and so on. It's very action-packed, very quick and direct. And we also learned, or at least I did in, in that first week, that when Jesus was baptized, that in doing so, he identified with us in his baptism. That was something that I learned. Last week we learned from Pastor David uh, that following Jesus, that he chose you and that following him means giving up the things of this world, but what we receive in exchange is a new identity in Christ and we receive a new purpose for our life. And today we're going to see a young rabbi from Nazareth bring forth the word, name Jesus. He's going to assert his authority in three areas. We're going to see him assort assert his authority in three areas. And his hearers, as we're going to see, were completely awestruck. And hell itself was rocked to its core. So buckle up, because things are about to get wild in Capernaum. 
So please stand with me with the reading of God's word in Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verses 21 through 34. And I apologize if it's a little different version on the screen. It's a long story that you don't want to hear. They went to Capernaum, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as teachers of the law. Just then, a man in this synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that illuminates your word for us. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring forth this word in a way that is in full counsel of this text, and it magnifies Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Thank you. So I'm a software engineer by trade. And as a software engineer, I'm given like a, a set of requirements and, I, and to create an application to solve that problem. And when I take those requirements, I, I then have to design and implement the software and then release it. And in my field, when I release it, many times I have to give presentations on my design to other engineers, um, to some non-technical folks, and uh, even customers when they let me out of the building every once in a while. But when I do that, when I, when I get up and I give a presentation on something I design, I, I do so with absolute authority. I can sit there and I can explain to you in detail every single function, file, data structure, all the purpose behind any little thing in that program. And the reason I can do that is because I created it. I am its author. And so I fully understand it and can speak with that authority. There are other times, and more often than not, when given a presentation, I'm speaking of things I didn't design. Now, in those cases, I can speak with some level of authority, but I can't speak with that intimate detail I can of my own design. And today, we're going to see Jesus assert his sovereign authority over Scripture, evil, and sickness. But before we jump into these areas, I'd like to paint a context it hopefully in your mind's eye, that will place you and I in that synagogue in Capernaum on that day. 
Now, Capernaum was a fishing village in the northwest shore on the Sea of Galilee. It was the hometown of Peter and his brother Andrew. And we learned last week that this was the place that Jesus called his first disciples. Now, Capernaum was a significant settlement. We know from Matthew chapter 8 that it housed Roman soldiers. It even had a tax collector's booth. Because this, and we'll see in the next week or so, this is from where Jesus would ultimately call Matthew. Although Capernaum had some level of significance in Jesus' day, it, like Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, held no Old Testament significance. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, those towns are not even mentioned. But even though Capernaum lacked any sort of Old Testament significance, Jesus would use it as his home base for his residence and throughout his preaching and healing ministry. So today, in today's passage, we find ourselves in Capernaum, in a synagogue, during Shabbat. Shabbat is the Hebrew term for the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, Saturday. In biblical days, a day began at sunset and ended sunset the following day. So Shabbat would have started Friday evening at sunset and ended Saturday evening at sunset. And I, I've been to Israel several times. And I've been there through the Shabbat, and I can tell you, everything is shuts down. It completely shuts down. It's a very peaceful time there. I was there by myself one time. Actually, it was the first time I was there. I was there on business, and there was nobody there with me personally. It was just me. And I didn't know. I landed on a, on a Friday. So I get to the hotel. I'm literally the only, like, Gentile, I think, in all of Tanya, Israel. And it was amazing to witness, like, going to use an elevator like the buttons didn't work you, you know there, there was an option so you didn't even have to press a button but what really struck me the most was the next day Saturday which was at the height of the Sabbath with all the families walking along the Mediterranean you would see grandparents walking with little children and maybe their parents 10 or 15 feet behind very leisurely very relaxing and so uh, it wasn't that different in Jesus's day the Sabbath is still observed in the same way today. So our story begins in the Capernaum synagogue on a Shabbat morning where a new young rabbi would be preaching. Now many of us in the last trip this church took to Israel, we actually visited this site, the synagogue, and we could see at that site first century pavements in, in the actual foundation that they believe is of the synagogue we just read about. But before we get to Jesus' teaching and what happened that day, I... I want us to all understand what is a synagogue and how did it operate. So a synagogue, which means assembly, is, would be established in any town that had at least 10 Jewish families. And it served primarily as a center for prayer and teaching. It was not like the temple. They didn't do sacrifice or anything there. A synagogue would have no full-time teacher. It would have like an administrator. He was called a Hassan. And his job, among many other things, was to ring the bell... At the beginning of the Sabbath, he was responsible for elementary education for children, and he was, had to seek out a rabbi for each service, so he was always scrambling, trying to find somebody to teach that service. And a Shabbat service would be simply, they would include prayer, they would read the Old Testament, basically a scroll, and then the rabbi, the visiting rabbi, would give a teaching on that scroll. Now... The, the rabbis that taught in that day pretty much quoted other rabbis. 
They would say, Rabbi Gamaliel says so-and-so, and Rabbi Kirk Patterson says something else. And they would, because they lacked the authority to actually speak on what the scriptures said. So Jesus must have been really well-known and respected to be selected on this particular Sabbath. And I can't imagine how excited those people were in that synagogue. In the synagogue, there'd be a, a special chair called the Seat of Moses, or the Moses Seat. And the visiting rabbi would be seated there until time came for him to read the scroll and then interpret it. So can you imagine you're sitting in this synagogue and you see Jesus of Nazareth sitting there. And you've heard, you might have heard some things about him. And you must have been super excited to hear what he had to say. Hopefully that paints enough of a context in all of our minds that we can picture ourselves in this Capernaum synagogue because things are about to get real wild in this synagogue. So thank you, Pastor Kirk, for picking this text for me. Uh, fits in well with my style, but anyway. So point number one, when Jesus speaks and teaches the word of God, he does so with divine authority. Look at me with me in verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So the word amazed here, or other translations might be astonished, it means a mixture of awe, of wonder, and of fear. And some commentaries render the word thunderstruck. Now, a friend of mine who was watching the first service texted me, he's like, you should have had the worship band play Thunderstruck by ACDC, but I don't think that would have been allowed. It would have been kind of cool, but they were thunderstruck at Jesus' teaching. Because remember, in their minds, they're used to just hearing a rabbi get up and quote other rabbis. Now, we know like in Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter 5, that wasn't Jesus' style. Jesus would get up and say, you have heard it said so-and-so, but I tell you so-and-so. Jesus had total authority over that scripture because he wrote the word of God. The root word for authority in this scripture could be rendered author. Jesus could speak with authority on the word of God because he is the word of God. John 1.1 1, 1, Speaking of Jesus says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. Recall Luke chapter 2, Jesus is a boy. He's only 12 years old. He's in the temple. And, and I reread this story this week, and it really struck out to me because I, I saw something that I had not seen before. It said that Jesus sat there listening and asking questions. He didn't go in there and just tell them everything they wanted to hear. Although he must have answered some questions because it says the priests were amazed at his understanding. So Jesus, even as a boy, had authority over the word of God. I imagine that Jesus must have spent time in the word of God. Even though he was the author, I'm sure there were more than one time that he'd finish up his chores with Joseph. And maybe he'd have an Old Testament scroll behind their little whatever they had, <laughs> a little shed. But, I, but Jesus, even as a boy, had a authority over the scripture. Now, what's interesting in this passage is Mark's primary emphasis is on the sovereign authority which what Jesus taught 
and not what he taught that day in the synagogue. Mark doesn't tell us, none of the other gospels tell us, because the primary emphasis is, is the sovereign authority in which Jesus taught. But we can speculate, I think, at least I like to, because whenever I'm thinking of these passages, I like to play it in my mind. What, what was going on? What were the idiosyncrasies between Jesus and the people? Perhaps Jesus was handed the scroll from Ezekiel 36 that talked about a day that was coming where God would remove our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a day that he would put his spirit within us, a day that he would sprinkle us with water and make us clean which Jesus was trying to communicate to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he said, you must be born again. Perhaps he taught on Isaiah 53, where he said, no, 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 the Messiah is actually going to come, and he's going to be pierced for your transgressions. He's going to be crushed for your iniquities, and the punishment that is due you is fallen upon him. Or maybe he taught, like I like to think, from Zechariah chapter 14, where he talked about how the Messiah would return to earth one day in great glory, and he would rule the nations from Jerusalem. Whatever the topic was, the synagogue members were left astonished and not fully understanding who Jesus is, but they know they have been confronted with a powerful word that was unknown to them, and they were alarmed they were alarmed they weren't the only ones who were astonished hell itself was thunderstruck and it responds in kind this is where you want to buckle up if you're not if you don't have your seatbelt on now number two when evil responds to the preaching of god's word jesus rebukes and expels it with divine authority. Look with me in verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Wherever God is at work, whether it's in your life, in your church, in your family, wherever God is at work, evil will respond with warfare, confusion, in distraction. I encountered that this week. I, uh, early on, uh, I, I had started writing this sermon. I had all my notes compiled, and I kind of wrote the introduction that ended with, and hell itself was thunderstruck. And I went about my day, like, pretty pumped up about that line. But as the day went on, I started thinking about the rest of the sermon, and I was getting confused. And I, would, I even heard, like, well, who are you to preach? Who, who do you think you are? You're not qualified. What, what do you think you're going to do when you get up there? You haven't done this in five years. What are you going to do? And a darkness had settled over me really bad. Like I had not. Now, spiritually, I'm a little slow to discern stuff. But by the end of the day, I was like, oh, my gosh. This is like I'm, I'm being attacked here. I, I really, I knew it. And, and my wife came in, and she's like, hey, Dan, how was your... What's wrong with you? And I looked at her, I said, I need you to pray for me right now. And she laid her hands on me, and she prayed for me. I texted Pastor Kirk and Shelby, and they prayed for me, and the staff prayed for me. And I got to tell you, that night, it lifted. And I awoke the next morning 
and everything was clear, and I just began writing, and, it, and I had not experienced it since. So I can't spend a lot of time here on spiritual warfare, but as a follower of Jesus, we need to understand this. You do not need to fear evil. You do not need to fear evil because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's the Holy Spirit that is in you. That same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives and dwells in you. And that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing anyone else can do. There's nothing any a, a demonic force can do to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So like David, we can confidently say, I will fear no evil. You don't need to fear evil. Even when it comes after you, you pray in the name of Jesus and it will leave. So before we look at how Jesus responds to this demon who calls out Jesus, let's look at what he says because it will give us insight to what evil knows and more interestingly, to me at least, what it does not know. What the evil spirit knew. Number one. Evil knows and affirms Jesus' earthly roots and his heavenly status. The demon calls Jesus by his earthly name. When he says, Jesus of Nazareth, he is acknowledging who Jesus is on this earth. And he ends with the Holy One of God, which affirms Jesus' heavenly status. So evil knows Jesus' earthly roots and heavenly status. What, what did it also know? Listen to this. Evil also knows there is an appointed day of judgment for them. Jude 1.6 says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, talking about God, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So when that demon said to Jesus, what do you want with us? It was an Old Testament way of actually saying, you do not have business with us yet. The demon knows Jesus will someday judge them once and for all, but it also knew that time was not yet, so it was confused by Jesus' presence. And why is that? And let's look at what evil did not know. Number one, that day in Capernaum, that demon... And Satan himself, they knew Jesus' identity, but they did not know the mission. Evil did not know God's redemption plan of the gospel, even though it was hidden in plain sight throughout the Old Testament. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses, and I'll tell you what, man, we... In, if you're taking notes, write down Colossians 1, 25 through 27 in your own time to look that up. Because I was doing a biblical study on the word ages when I came across the scripture. And really what jumped out at me was what we're going to discuss right now. All right, let's read. Verse 7. I, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Why? He tells us. His intent, meaning God, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that the gospel was hidden in God the whole time. You know, I hear people say all the time that Satan knows the word better than we do, and I don't buy that. I don't buy that, and I don't believe it to be true. Because from this passage, we know that the gospel was hidden in God, even though it was latent throughout the whole Old Testament, that Satan himself did not know that the Messiah would come to die and be resurrected to redeem man from the fall of the garden so long ago. Otherwise, he would not have, as we just read a few weeks ago during Easter, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he would not have entered Jesus, Judas to betray Jesus. He would have done the opposite. There's no way he would have wanted to help out in any way God's redemptive plan. But he didn't know. Just like this demon in Capernaum did not know what Jesus was there for. See, only the Holy Spirit can bring illumination to God's word. And God chose his church, us, and he baptized us with the Holy Spirit so that through the manifold wisdom of the Old Testament, that means all those streams coming together to declare to the world, and Paul says to the heavenly realms and the authorities thereof. He's speaking of demons and Satan and all the evil. He says God chose his church to declare to them the eternal purpose of Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to redeem us to God himself. Why would God do that? Why didn't he just abolish evil right on the spot? Because through justice... Romans 5, 8 tells us that God wanted to demonstrate his love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we would not wanted anything to do with him, while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us, that he came and he died for us. And I love that term, that manifold wisdom. And it's through his church that he declares to them all the gospel. As I was sharing out with my wife, she said, can you imagine... When Jesus rose from the dead, evil, how their response must have been. Can you imagine? Thunderstruck, baby. thunderstruck yeah. They were thunderstruck. Don't get me singing. Don't get me going. I'm already fired up enough. Anyway. <laughs> but they were thunderstruck. And you know what? I would love, I would love to stay here. I really would. Man, there is so much in that text. But I need to move on. Okay, so how does Jesus respond to this evil? Evil knew Jesus but did not know his mission. How does he respond? In essence, Jesus tells the demon to shut up. The be quiet in verse 25. I was like, I don't know if I can say that in church. Verse 25 is a colloquial for shut up. 
And the evil spirit never says another word but leaves the man in dramatic fashion. Now, Jesus quieted his demon as soon as it declared Jesus' heavenly status. And I believe Jesus did this because he did not want an undesirable like witness to acknowledge who he was. Remember, at this point in his ministry, it was not revealed yet that he was the Christ. So now was not the time for that to be declared, and hell certainly wasn't going to be the voice for that declaration. So Jesus told him to shut up. And I, I don't know this, but I imagine as soon as the, de uh, the, the demon shouted out, you know, you're the holy one, I, I, I think Jesus immediately shut it up. Immediately. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but that's what I believe, because he did not want to be authenticated by them. So... <laughs> Now, what a wild scene that must have been in the church. It must have been a wild. Now, I don't know how that church service ended, uh, but it must have been interesting. What do you do after Jesus exercises a demon? Yeah, you give a benediction, take an offering, maybe give COVID instructions to avoid clumpage, right? So we're not told how it ended, but in that culture, very much like our culture, which I can't wait to do, is after church, they went home to eat. They went home and had the Shabbat meal, and Jesus must have been famished. I mean, he'd been preaching, he'd been fighting hell, and he and his disciples head to Peter's house. Now, if you had been there where this synagogue was or is, and Peter's house is not that far. So, but Jesus' day is far from over. So point number three, Jesus has full authority over sickness. Verse 30, look at me, verse 30, please. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Poor Jesus, right? He's even going to have to work for his lunch. So they tell Jesus that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And again, in these scenes, I love to play in my mind's eye what it might have looked like. And, you know, Luke tells us that, Mark doesn't, but Luke tells us that Jesus rebuked the fever. But, but that's not really, I love how Mark focuses on, he says, Jesus took her by the hand and he raised her up well. You know, when you're in a situation, when you're a follower of his, and you're going through a storm, you're going through something, there is nothing like the touch of God to bring you to wellness, or even a hug from another saint. I love how God touches her in this moment where divine power meets physical frailty with a touch, with love and compassion. So she gets up and she serves them. You know, I, I don't know this again, I'm speculating in the old movie in my mind, but I imagine as she was getting stuff ready, she, she must have looked over at Jesus a few times. And I imagine Jesus sitting there with the disciples just either watching football or chatting, and I'm sure Jesus mid-sentence looked right back at her and just smiled at her. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like to believe that because you know something? This woman, I'm sure she knew her life was never going to be the same. Because when you come to Jesus, 
and you make him Lord, your life will never be the same. You'll never be alone. It will never be the same. So what else happens? Something else incredible happens. Verse 32. Let's look at that real quick. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So, you know, they're just trying to relax. I'm, I'm sure the Galilean meal was amazing. And they're just trying to relax, and there's a knock at the door. And the mother-in-law goes to answer it again in the movie, in my mind, and Peter yells out, who is it, Mom? You know, Peter, right? And she replies back something like, uh, everybody, everybody, the whole town is here. The whole town shows up to see Jesus. Now, it tells us that they did at sunset because the Shabbat would not end, like I mentioned earlier, until the sun set that Saturday evening. So these people were in their home, and they must have all afternoon been talking about that church service. And they, someone probably said, well, he's right down the road at Peter's house. Let's go. And it must have spread like wildfire so that the whole town shows up. Surely Jesus, after an electrifying, to say the least, church service, a meal, relaxing, surely he could have said, come back tomorrow. But how does he respond? Jesus responds by healing sick people and setting free people oppressed by the enemy. In his love and in his compassion, Jesus goes out and he began, he knew, he knew that they were there for what he could do for them and not necessarily for him. But he went outside anyway. Now, I don't know what you brought in with you today. I don't know what you're carrying, but we all come in with backpacks of burdens. Some of you are in here, you, you have sickness. Some of you here have other circumstances in your life that you look at like a mountain that can't be moved. I don't know what it is, but he does. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus has authority over any area that you're dealing with. Because today we learn that Jesus has authority over scripture, he has authority over evil, and he has authority over sickness. But we know from Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus said all authority on heaven and under heaven, all authority has been given to me. There is nothing that you're dealing with that he does not have authority over. And in a moment, I'm gonna pray for that. And I, I want you to think about what mountain is in your life that you just cannot see ever being moved. And I want you to bring it to him in faith, knowing he has authority. Now, that's for followers of Jesus. Now, I want to talk to those who are not following Jesus. For those that maybe come to church or you may be here by coincidence, you may be listening to this 10 years from now. I don't know. But I do know this. And this is a serious word that the Lord gave me. And I don't know who this is for. But I want to be clear that Jesus has authority over all things. 
Philippians chapter 2 tells us about the supremacy of Christ. It's one of the most glorious passages in all scripture. And in one of the verses it says, talking about Jesus, that God has exalted him to the highest place and has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming when every one of us and anyone who has ever lived, every angelic being, whether it's holy or whether it's fallen, we are going to bend the knee and declare him Lord. Now, I don't know when that day is going to be, but Matthew 25 talks about a day when Jesus returns to this earth and all the nations are going to appear before him. And he's going to separate what he called the sheeps and the goat. On his right are going to be the sheep, the people who follow him. And on the left are going to be the goats. Now, if that were to happen on that day, can I tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will bend your knee. You're going to shout him, Lord. You're going to be full of hallelujahs because you've done it a million times while you were here. But if you don't know Jesus, if you're not following him, you will bend your knee in total terror because you're going to know that who he is and you're going to know your fate. And that doesn't have to happen. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that sounds really simple. But do you know where most people struggle with? It's declaring him Lord. It's saying, Lord, I surrender my life to you, and I place myself under your lordship. If that's you, you could simply pray, Jesus, I believe God raised you from the dead. Pray this with me if you don't know him. I believe you are the Lord of all, and I ask you to be the Lord of my life. I invite you into my heart to live. Thank you for giving my past, my present, and all my future sin. Amen. If you prayed that and you're here in this place, some of the pastors will probably be out here in the, in the fellowship hall here. If you're online, you could just simply type, I prayed that prayer, and somebody will reach out to you. Or you can email Pastor Kirk at kirk at trinitynr.org, and he will reach out to you. So Mark, if, if you and the worship team want to come up. Finally, I, I want to circle back to followers of Jesus. And I want to talk about what you brought in here. See, we can have a, design, a, a, a divine exchange with the Lord. He says, you know what he says? He says, cast all your cares on me. All your cares. No matter how major or minor, let's bring them to the Lord. If we were not in COVID, we'd have an old-fashioned altar call here. But we are. But in your place, as I pray, I want you to bring your concern to Jesus. I want you to believe in your heart that he is Lord, that he truly has authority 
over any area you're dealing with. And let's pray. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we know when we come to your throne of grace, Father, in his name, that we can find mercy or grace in our time of need. Mercy for when we really mess up bad. And grace when we need the strength to endure. So Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would go throughout this place and anybody listening. And I pray you would collect from all these people their burdens. I pray you would take, take their backpacks off of them, Lord. Let them leave them at your feet. Let them leave them in this place. And I pray that they would exchange that for your divine peace. Not the peace that this world gives, but only the peace that Jesus Christ can give. So, Father, we lay them at your feet. Thank you for hearing their prayers. Thank you for moving on their behalf. And thank you for granting them peace. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen.